Welcome to the Be In Cyber podcast. Today's guest is the amazing Holly Grace Williams of Akimbo Core, pen tester extraordinaire, as I like to say. We're going to talk about pen testing, what makes a good pen tester, the different career paths available, how you gain experience, as well as finally, I'm sure we'll talk about conferences at some point. Let's get on to the conversation. So today's guest is the amazing Holly Grace Williams from Akimbo Core. Thank you so much for joining us on the Be In Cyber podcast, Holly. Thanks for having me. So I'm sure everybody's going to know who you are, but give us a little bit of background for yourself, Holly. What do you do? Yeah, I'm the managing director at Kimbocar, a Kimbocar penetration testing company. So I spend most of my time uh, thinking about breaking into computers. So that's the majority of the work that I do. But of course, also being the managing director, there's a lot of the business side and sales sides to, to it and that kind of thing. But I don't think anyone will think of that stuff when they think of me. Most of what I do when I'm talking publicly or on podcasts and stuff like that is talking about pen testing. So what is pen testing? I'm sure most people who want to get into cyber either want to be a pen tester or a SOC analyst. But in your mind, what would you describe penetration testing as? Penetration testing is a human-led, scope-restricted, time-limited security assessment of a specific system. So the way that I think about pen testing is not as a specific thing, but as a position on a spectrum. So with security testing, on the furthest left side, you can think of vulnerability analysis, which is automation-led. So we're using tooling where we're putting scope systems into the tool, click and go, and it scans and finds vulnerabilities, automation-led. And then on the right-hand side, the far side, you've got things like red teaming, where they're very similar to pen testing in terms of they're human-led, but the distinction there is they're not scope-restricted in the same way. So with red teaming, you'd be doing very likely to be doing technical, physical, and social attacks. So I think of pen testing as the middle of security testing, where it's human-led, that's one of its main characteristics. But what we're focusing on is finding as many vulnerabilities as we can and getting as deep into a system as, a, as we can. But one of the things we're not doing is trying to perform those actions without being noticed. We're not spending a lot of time on evasion and things like that. That is the realm of red teaming. And do you prefer red teaming to pen testing then? No, not at all. I think it's one of those things where there's actually a problem in an in industry where uh, red teaming is romanticized. And in particular, specific actions within red teaming are rom romanticized. So particular physical access testing. People very often want to talk about physical access testing. But in terms of what I enjoy the most, that kind of thing, I'm in, in security testing for the technical challenge. So most of what I think about is the technical side of things, as opposed to uh, physical and social. And also... I care more about kind of like pulling the system apart and finding complex vulnerabilities, so maybe vulnerabilities within the logic of a machine rather than just standard kind of quote unquote standard, um, simple things like cross-site scripting and that kind of thing. I'm looking at a little bit deeper uh, and that's much easier to do looking for those deeper logic-based vulnerabilities when you're not worrying about evasion and that kind of thing. If you're worrying about evasion, you're doing things slower, maybe you'll limit some of the techniques or some of the tools that you can use because a big part of what you're trying to do is measure the response an organization has and you focus less on the specific technical aspects of the attack. So no, I generally prefer pen testing. Have you ever not got in? Of course, that always happens. You can scope limit any engagement to the point that you can't get in. So, you know, just keep restricting my actions as a pen tester. You'll eventually get to the point that I can't do anything. But obviously you're not going to be secure at the other end of that. No, no. And this is one of the big distinctions. I think a lot of people, a lot of people think I guess there's two big misconceptions with pen testing. One, one of them is that we can hack anything we want in any way that we want, and therefore there'll always be some weakness and there'll always be some way in. And the second thing is a lot of people still think, not within cybersecurity, but certainly lay people, people outside of cybersecurity think, uh, we find the vulnerabilities and then we fix them. 
which we don't, and maybe we can talk about that in a second. But yeah, when I say human-led scope-restricted time limited, scope-restricted is, it comes from a sensible place. So maybe an organization, for example, has made a new version of their mobile application or something like that, right? We want you to test our new version of our mobile application before it goes live. That makes sense. Time-limited makes sense because this is a consultancy service. So you're paying for a security tester's time to look at your systems and time is money. So the shorter the, the assessment is, the cheaper it is, so that the more cost-efficient it is. But of course, with those two variables, you could tune that down so that no one would ever break into your systems because we can say you can only look at this one tiny piece of our system and you've only got 20 minutes to do it. So then I wouldn't get in. So the question of like, it's a very sensible question of like, oh, do you ever find an organization that's so secure that you can't break in? Great conversation. We could talk more about that. But there's always going to be those instances where people are gaming pen testing. And in particular, if they're getting pen tested for something like audit purposes or because a customer has told them to, but that customer is not involved in the process of selecting the scope and things like that. Yeah, organizations can always just like tie our hands and make it so we can't hack anything. Do you see a lot of annual pen tests or like customers that come to you for an annual pen test and the same remediations are there time and time again? Or it's two parts to that question. The first that I'll jump on. Uh, do I see a lot of annual pen tests? How frequently should an organization get a pen test? Very good question. It's a very difficult question, isn't it? It's a very difficult question. We could spend the rest of this episode just talking about that question. But but in short, without going into a, a deep discussion about how you work out how frequently you should test and, and what testing would look like if you were to do it more frequently than annually, a lot of companies just fall back on that. Well, well, we'll do it once a year because an arbitrary lap of the sun is quite a long time. So if we've done a lap of the sun, we should probably get another security test. Um, so we do see a lot of companies doing things like that. Not necessarily because they're approaching it wrong, but maybe it's just a naive approach of they they don't have the expertise or they've never sat down with the consultant to work out, well, how frequently should we test and what should we be basing it on if it's not just 12 months arbitrarily. And then the second part is like, uh, is there a lot of tick box testing where, you know, we go in and we, we do a test and then a year later we do a test and, it, and it's all the same vulnerabilities? No, I don't get that. It's my experience talking to other testers that other testers do. And maybe that is a factor of things like the the vertical that you work in. So, for example, I don't do a huge amount of um, central government work. Yeah. So like Crest or check. Yeah, check work. Check work specifically. I am Crest certified, but, but check uh, security cleared work for government. I don't do a lot of that because boring. But maybe it's that's the reason. Maybe it's not that that stuff doesn't exist. It's just that doesn't exist within our customer base. So very, very often the customers that we're working with are doing it. I guess you'd say, oh, doing it for best practices, but but they're doing it genuinely to get more secure. So so very often, like we do an assessment and then there's a, a, an immediate period afterwards where we're, we're working with them to fix those vulnerabilities. On our side, that's making sure that they understand them and making sure that the planned changes they are making would actually address those vulnerabilities. Like, have they understood the technical detail of the vulnerability? And on their side of things, how awful would it be if you were told that your systems were vulnerable and then later down the line you were breached using a vulnerability that you knew about? So as soon as they're aware of it, they want to fix it as quickly as possible. And, and sometimes that's a little bit of frustration on their side of things where sometimes, quite often, finding a vulnerability is a lot easier than fixing it. If you think about something that requires a code change, for example, it might take me a couple of hours to prove a system's vulnerable and send that out to them and they open a ticket. And then it might take them a couple of weeks to develop a fix, have the fix tested, get, get it peer reviewed, get it pushed into production. And that can be quite frustrating to them where they've got that, that delay between detection and remediation. Especially if it's a critical system and it's kind of interacting with multiple, multiple systems that, you know, 
you don't know how long that piece of work is going to be. Even even in the most simple systems, like there's a lot of organizations out there that, that aren't set up for continuous deployment. They're not set up for getting code changes into production very quickly. I mean, you look at the traditional software model where you have like a monolithic deployment of like every 12, year, uh, every 12 months you release a new version or something like that. And then suddenly you say, here's a vulnerability. You've got to get this into production in a unit of hours, not a unit of months. And then they're just not set up for that. So it's there's also a side to security testing, which interacts with kind of the continuous deployment side of things of like, how quickly can you make these changes to your system? How quickly can you get those patches published or, or code changes made? And as a lot of organizations, that's one of the big things they struggle with. So how did you get into penetration testing? And obviously you started in an MOD career, military career. Talk, talk me through that, the things that you're allowed to say. <laughs> It's generally a misconception. Like a lot of what I did was secret, but that's the technical specifics of the systems that I worked on were secret as opposed to like what it, what I was doing. So, so my role in the military is effectively, easiest way to think about it is the maintenance, installation and decommissioning of secure communication systems. So what I was interested in was communication systems and, and networking. And uh, in particular at the time, so this is like 2007, um, satellite communications and things like that. But you can imagine working in that organization, so working in the British Army, a huge part of what they were concerned about is is security, um, both in terms of operational deployments, so security of systems deployed in theatre, but then also that kind of national security level thing of like, what can nation states do to our systems, that kind of thing. So everything we did had this overarching kind of security aspect to it. So because of that, that was just something that I was very aware of. And my initial expectation upon leaving the military would be that I would go into network engineering or network security. Uh, and then in actuality, when kind of preparing for, for leaving the military, it was all of the security stuff that I found myself more interested in. And so it's in, entirely like by chance in that way, of course, I put a huge amount of effort into it, but it, it's that kind of thing, misconception where people think, oh, you must have always been interested in hacking. And so it's like, oh, since you were seven, you must have been interested in hacking. It's like, not really. Like security and, and, and use of computers, I was interested in at a very young age and security was an aspect of that. But no, I never went like through secondary school wanting to be a security tester or something like that. It wasn't until much later. How did you find, you know, that, that transition coming out of the military? Oh, I did it in the worst way possible. Um, so I, I did five and a half years in the military and then I did a master's degree and then I got a civvy job. So I went from uh, effectively the one of the last things that I did before I left the military was an operational deployment. So I went from deployment to being a full time student. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was quite quite a change. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a. A different job. If you're to talk to somebody, kind of like the stereotype from an organization, like maybe tech vets or somebody who's who's resettling from a long military career, certainly if they've done 12 years, 22 years, something like that, their experience would probably be very different to mine. I mean, I'm not saying my way was a bad way of doing it. Like I got a degree and that's an awesome thing because that's a tick box when you get come to getting jobs and things like that. HR loves degrees, but it, it was a very big change, shall I say. <laughs> what made you decide you wanted to come out? Was, was it a specific thing that made you go actually no this isn't for me I want to go into civil history or was there oh it was really complicated um but uh, so the, the short answer is that I wanted a degree and the fastest way to get a degree was to to leave and then do my master's degree so yeah it was it was a quirk of that the the military for people who are in there is opportunities within the military to get a degree and there's like a return of service option where you can effectively have like time off serving to do a degree and then you you just pay back in time so you take like three years out and then and then add three years to your service and that kind of thing. I didn't do that though, because the fastest way at the time for me was 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 to leave. And the, the big distinction there was uh, that I got the master's degree. That was the the reason. So the military would have there was mechanisms for the military to pay for me to do my undergrad, but I wanted to do the master's. 
mainly because it's shorter. That's <laughs> do it in one year instead of like four or whatever people do for undergrads. Yeah. So you then went to Lockheed, you know, standard military, soft landing, as they call it. Nothing really interesting to talk about that. And it, and it wasn't like a, a soft landing in that way. What it was, I actually went to, to Lockheed before my degree. The reason for that was, so university starts at a fixed time, right? So it's like, oh, September university starts. But I left the military in like June or something like that. So it was just a three month contract to fill that gap between leaving the military and um, going to university. So yeah, it's it's a very like, I mean, anyone who's done contracting knows knows what that's like. So I just did 12 weeks of network engineering before I went to university. And then you knew then you were doing your master's, you wanted to get into security testing. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. So um, my master's degree is in information security with privacy. So it's not, I didn't do like a ethical hacking degree or or, or really a cyber security degree as, as people might have assumed. It's a broader degree, information security with privacy. But again, it just like... <laughs> A factor of playing the HR game of just like, that's a good degree to get to go into lots of jobs. So uh, it's also a good degree. You know, some people might want to change roles. So some people might be a pen tester for a few years and then want to work in a SOC for a few years. So having a more generic degree as opposed to like ethical hacking or something is useful for that kind of thing. Because of course, back then I didn't necessarily know I hadn't been a pen tester when I was doing my degree. So although it was what I wanted to do and it was what my passion was, there's a big distinction between I enjoy learning about this in my free time and this is my nine to five. So, you know, I didn't I didn't want to know that. Like when you're learning about pen testing, you don't spend huge amounts of time writing reports and talking to customers and all of that kind of thing. So, so yeah, so my, my plan through university was to get a pen testing position, but I was preparing in case uh, my feelings in the area changed or even maybe the market changed. So let's talk about what penetration testing is then, because you just touched upon. People think it's breaking into systems and it's, you know, getting DA or whatever what's the day-to-day things that people don't think about if, if, if somebody's considering a pen testing career what should they be aware of you meant a great point there and, and it's a bit of a kind of short code that we use in pen testing you use for getting dear so for, for those who don't know that that acronym domain admin right so what we're talking about here is we're hacking a windows system we're trying to uh, compromise active directory to get effectively the highest level of privilege the pedants out there also that's enterprise admin but the point being we, we get an admin account and then we can access it anything and a lot of pen testers kind of treat pen testing as if that's the end goal, where you get DA and then you stop, or you click go in Nessus or whatever, and then you start writing a report. When in actuality, the point of penetration testing is to dem- demonstrate real world risk to the company. So by getting DA, uh, we can do that. So whatever this company is concerned about, so they're concerned about a ransomware attack or a data breach or something like that. If I have DA, I could do those things. But the difficulty is by getting DA, you haven't demonstrated that to the business. So if you sit down with an executive and say, I got DA, they'll go, awesome. What's DA? Yeah. What's that mean? Yeah. And and that's the step that we, we very often miss. And we miss it within pen testing when, when we're talking to each other as well, because there is an implication there that you get as far into a system as you can and get as deep into a system as you can. And if on a Windows uh, domain, if you get DA, then you're done. But of course, you know, there's that, there's that additional side of things. So. Where the starting point for a pen test is, is maybe different to what people expect. And it's going to be based on what is the intention of the assessment. So, for example, if an organization is worried about what could a guest visitor or contractor do walking into one of our buildings, plugging into an exposed network port, my starting point there is going to be, well, I'm going to need to do some network mapping because I don't know my way around. And also, I probably don't have any level of credential in the network. So I'm not going to be able to do things like a, a numerate active directory and things like that. None of the systems are going to talk to me because I don't have a valid account. 
But if the organization is more concerned about something like what if a phishing account is successful and a user account or a corporate device is compromised, the perspective at the start of that test is very different. I'm probably on a valid corporate device and I probably have some low privileged user account. Like I'm a member of sales or or of the reception desk or something like that, or terrifyingly frequently a member of the IT support time team. Um, so I'm somewhere on the network and I have some level of credentials. Uh, so those perspectives are very different, but the general journey is going to be the same. So network mapping and enumeration, compromise of user accounts, privilege escalation, propagation, and then like you say, domain admin. And then one step further than that, I, I tend to uh, simplify as you say, like capture the flag. But what I mean by that is once you've got domain admin, it's like demonstrate that risk to the organization. So I can access this data store and this means X. I can uh, ransomware uh, end user devices and this means Y uh, and, and kind of filling that in to demonstrate the real world risk of the compromise. Because I suppose it's not just can you get in, it's what can you do when you're in there and how quickly can you be stopped? No, not even that. Not even that. It's what does it mean to the business? That's the big thing. What does it mean to the business? Of course, the way that you communicate with an IT manager is going to be very different to the way that you communicate with, with an executive or a business leader. And yeah, the, the business as an entity should care what does this mean to the business. And uh, an example of that would be things like the potential for brand damage will mean vastly different things depending on what the organization is and what they do. You know, uh, an organization that does something boring like make envelopes might be, I might have a very different consideration for brand damage than you know, a major multinational police. or something like that. Oh, the police. Yeah, that's good. brilliant. Yeah. The government, government. Northern Ireland police. police. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That doesn't mean those things are uh, not impactful to every organization, but like specifically what would impact that organization may differ. So what's been the most enjoyable part then, would you say, of your career? Because you've you've worked for SecOne, you've worked for Sagama, you know, managing your own business. I imagine your skills have changed. I like how you started my career and like, freaking 2014 there because i had started in 2007 um, so yeah interesting so you're specifically looking at the cybersecurity side of things i think i think the the big thing that i would like to to point out there is like in terms of what i've enjoyed but also making it clear to other people is there's there's two sides to this and sometimes sometimes people think there is only one side so within technical roles sometimes people think you work as an engineer or an analyst or a pen tester for a few years and then you become a team leader and then you become a manager and then you become like a director of or something and you no longer touch computers. And, you know, you start working in like Metasploit and Crack and Map Exec and then you finish your career working in PowerPoint. And that is a thing for some people. And if you uh, want to be a manager, or if you're good at being a manager, then that is a brilliant um, career path. But there is also the option to just remain an individual contributor throughout your career. So if if it is the technical side and it's pen testing that you that you want to do, don't don't be terrified that you're like uh, limiting your career options in that that way. You can stay uh, an engineer or stay a tester for a very long time. For me, the things that I find most interesting are generally that technical side of things, and very often it's not even the stuff that I talk about, but it's those interactions with customers. So personally. One of the things that is most enjoyable to me is like at the end of an, an engagement, it's like a red team engagement or, or like a simplified something like a targeted breach assessment or something. It's talking through the organization of like, what did the SOC see? And importantly, what did they think I was up to? And then what was I actually up to? And how close is that related and things like that? Um, and talking through some people might, if I just say purple team engagement, you'll get in the right area for what I'm talking about here. But it doesn't have to be that involved. It can just be the debrief following a pen test, like, how did it go? What did you find? Very often, that's because 
something silly has happened, like the company's got caught out because, for, for example, I remember many years ago now, whilst doing a pen test, there was a member of staff who was provisioning laptops on the network and he was doing it in that quite naive way of like he plug it into the corporate network and then he start installing his updates and start installing the corporate tools and stuff like that. And like he, as he was plugging one of those devices in, I compromised it. So I got on it before oh, wow. I had like any of his endpoint protection and stuff like that. Some people will laugh at that because they'll say, well, this is why you should build them off network and things like, yeah, but what you should do in a textbook versus what people actually do is different. People process and technology, isn't it? It's yeah. And, and that's the sort of advice you can then go back to say to them. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but sometimes it's just like the things that I enjoyed in a pen test was just like I had some good luck or I had some intuition that a system might be vulnerable in a certain way and it proved to be correct. Because that's a nice feeling when you kind of like make some assumptions and then it and then it works out. So very often it's not it's not the kind of thing where you would like stand up on a stage and talk about like oh I I did this. It's just like yeah, that was pretty funny. Like some bad luck on your part. I caught you out. Or for example, where a SOC detects the activity that I've done but incorrectly classify it, or they take too long responding to it, or you know they they're unaware of the particular technique that I'm deploying, and then I feel like hey I got one up on the SOC kind of thing. Because we shouldn't we shouldn't dwell too much on that. We shouldn't dwell too much on on being adversarial. But it's still a nice piece of pride when you get away with something as a tester. Yeah, and you're not and you're not actually seen. I suppose that's a really important part of the role. And I suppose there is a misconception that you're not actually going to be you're just going to be working with the technology. You don't need those people skills in pen testing. You are going to be writing reports. You are going to be dealing with stakeholders. You're going to be. You need to be able to explain what you're doing. How have you kind of worked to hone those skills, or, or how? What advice would you give to somebody who wants to be a pen tester? What do you think are those really important impact skills? I, I hate calling them soft skills. They're not soft at all. Call them professional skills. Professional then. skills. Yes, even better. The the way to think about it to frame this for the best value for the customers. The customer is paying for the report. They're not paying for the test. It's the report that they need. Because you could do the best test in the world, but if you can't explain the outcomes of that test to the customer, then they're not going to be able to action those findings and remediate those vulnerabilities. Uh, so the customer's paying for the, for the report. But also bear in mind that having that kind of standardized delivery where you go in and you deliver a pen test and then you write a report and you send them the report and you say, see you next year, isn't a great amount of value to a customer. One of the things you should be looking at is having those debriefs with companies at the end of the engagement, talking through the company. In the very least, giving the the technical team the testing narrative of how did you approach the test? Why were you able to bypass those defenses that they had in place? And that could be as simple as things like antivirus evasion, or it could be as complex as why didn't the SOC notice these activities and having that that kind of hot debrief. But also making sure that like that the company understands that process because very often a lot of pen test reports just come down to a list of vulnerabilities, high risk to low risk. And it could be the case that there's some companies as a side effect of that start at the highs and work their way down until they run out of time somewhere around the mediums and they never get down to things like system hardening or they never get down to improving those detection and response processes and that kind of thing. Yes, there's big companies out there who are doing red teaming who are making that progress. There's an awful lot of small companies out there who are nowhere near being mature enough to deliver a red team. But that doesn't mean you can't start sending them in that direction of helping them with their defense response what's your do you have a preference in terms of type of customers that you work with would you rather somebody that's sort of at the beginning of their security journey shall we say no it makes no difference yeah they very often people are like oh what what kind of verticals do you work in and things like that it's like we don't have a specific vertical that we target we don't have a specific organization that we target yeah i mean the important thing is that we want to work with an engaged customer uh, so that when we put together these reports they start actioning them but actually a lot of that is on us 
if we don't make that report consumable and if we don't make that uh, information available to them and work with them through the process, then of course they won't be an engaged customer. So yeah, like some of my favorite customers are uh, in all kinds of articles from e-commerce to like uh, construction, for example. Um, yeah, there's no there's no specific organization that, that, that we target. And generally speaking, it's just like, I want to work with someone on the other side who cares and and that doesn't mean that they have to be a technical ninja. You know, they're, they're not necessarily even a technical leader as long as they're like, okay, we understand the benefit that we can get through this process and we want to go through it. So what, obviously, you've been, like I said, you've worked for Sequan, you've worked for Sakama, you're now working for yourself. What would you say has been the most influential part of your career in terms of how much you've grown and developed? Is there a, a key point that you think, actually, that was that was really good for my personal development? Or has it just all been... I mean, it depends depends on which area. It's like, um, I guess the, the, answer, the answer there is like, if you're working for an organization where you're not developing personally, you need to leave that organization immediately. So I, I can't say like, oh, one of those companies like has, has developed me personally more than the other, because if if it, if I wasn't getting that development, then then you should leave. I guess the guidance on that side would be like, if you are new to pen testing, and that could be like, you haven't started yet, you're a recent graduate or a cross train or something like that. Or even if like you're in your first couple of years, and you may be thinking about, do I want to stay at this company or move to another company? Like, those are things you should be thinking about during that process is like, does this company have a training budget? Does this company have members of the team that I can learn things of? And that could be technical side of things, or it could be the management skills or business skills or what have you. But yeah, I can't I can't say necessarily that that one company taught me more than than any other there's definitely team members out there there's definitely individuals that i've worked with where like uh, i've learned very deep technical skills or even just an interesting approach from them but no i think that's something that like i've been concerned about throughout my whole career is just like um how am i developing and that could be something simple like picking up a new programming language uh, i shouldn't trivialize that i just meant that as like <laughs> a not not directly related to my career as a pen tester i didn't necessarily mean it like oh picking up programming languages yeah. that's not easy <laughs> I didn't mean to trivialize that skill set that could be something like oh just some skill that's that's interesting but not directly related to what i do or it could be like becoming a better pen tester or becoming a better manager or something like i'm constantly looking for that stuff and i think everybody should so you went down the crest route in terms of certifications and crest certified yeah yeah so what advice would you give to somebody new would would it be to get certified would it be to get you know projects and self-study and you know get on hack the box what if somebody's just starting out and wants to be a pen tester which i know a lot of the people who sort of listen to this might be just starting out in their career. What advice would you give them? Mm, got to take a step back from that because there's an interesting quirk of when we talk about this this topic that's important. So you will hear people say things like, you do not need a degree to work in cybersecurity, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't help you. And I have a degree. And one of the reasons that I have a degree, I have a master's degree, is to tick that box with HR. And people will say things to you like, oh, well, if you don't have a degree, you can have a conversation with them and you can explain why your knowledge or background or experience is equivalent to a degree. And yes, you can, but also I can tick the box. So you don't need it, but there is a benefit to it is an important nuance here. Um, so for example, if you're looking at building up the skills and that kind of thing, you might be looking at things like Hack the Box uh, and that might be helping you with building up those skills. And you might look at something like the you know, a uh, crest practitioner, or you might look at something like the OSCP or or uh, even come to your certifications and those kinds of things. And you may be able to get those very easily. You might be, you know, within a privileged position where a couple of thousand pounds for an exam is not a big deal for you. Or you might be in a position where you're like, oh my God, how expensive are these exams? Because crest certified tester exams are not a cheap exam. 
So that doesn't mean there is not a benefit to those exams existing. And, and that could be a, a couple of different ways. One would be just following the structure of that certification could be good to kind of um, keep you moving forwards to, to give you like, what is the next step in my learning? And also kind of to give you a level of where you're at in terms of like, okay, I did, I did the, I followed the, the schedule of this particular exam. I found it very easy. I followed the schedule of this one and that was harder. So maybe that's the level that I'm at. And when you're doing things like having interviews with organizations, telling them that you're following those structures, but haven't passed the exam is very often good enough, especially if you're working for organizations who have a training budget, because they might just say to you, oh, great. It sounds like you've done all of the learning. We'll pay for the exam. Um, so yeah, what that's a very long way of saying um, I think professional certifications like CompTIA and Crest and offensive security certifications are great and you should get them if you can, but if you can't, because you're just financially unable to afford doing all of those exams, doesn't mean that it's not worth looking at the, the structure of those exams in the syllabus. Yeah, that's really good advice because certain companies, like you say, if if you want to be a penetration tester and you want to work for a consultancy, say, for example, Pentest Partners or Sequon, like places that you've worked before, they're going to want to see those consultancy skills. And am I right in thinking the more certifications that you've got, the more billable you are to a customer? No, not at all. Um, in the same way that, so there are some exceptions to that. So for example, you can only work for companies doing Czech work if you are Czech certified. Big part of that is not the certification, it's the security clearance. So to work within secret environments, you must be security cleared. To work within top secret, more than occasionally, you must be uh, must have developed vetting. That's usually the, the distinguishing feature there. And then also there's some considerations there of like, I could very easily say, great, you should get SC cleared. Uh, and then you can work for all these, these um, government positions. It's impossible. Well, not, not only that, but for some people, it just doesn't work. So like um, foreign nationals, for example, that it just might not be an option for them at this time. There's pathways, but in short, it might not be as easy as fill out the form. You also can't get yourself security cleared. You need to be sponsored by a company. So it's very much chicken and egg. You need the job to get security cleared. Yeah. So, so the, the, that side of things. But but generally speaking, like I don't agree with the fact that having more certifications makes you more billable. It's never been my experience as a, as a pen tester. I also don't believe that like having more certifications makes you more hireable. There might be some organizations that have hard restrictions. Like there are organizations out there that say you must have a degree. And if you don't, they will not hire you. But there's enough companies out there that don't have those restrictions where it shouldn't be a problem. It's very important to point that out because there might be people who apply just through luck, you know, bad luck, where they might apply to like three or four or five of these organizations and you get knocked back every single time you don't have the certification. But that isn't representative of the entire industry. That could just be the companies that they happen to have applied for. I think as well, there's the flip side of that. Getting a degree doesn't guarantee that you're going to walk into a graduate job. But like you say, it's if you're starting from a retraining perspective, having something, you you either need to get the experience or you need to get the degree to showcase that, that you have that aptitude to carry on learning to get hired. But even, even experience is a loaded word. So very often when, when you say you must have experience, people might interpret that to mean professional experience. Some companies might mean that we are only hiring people with three years professional experience, which, by the way, is a terrible metric for capability years of experience but it could be the case that actually what they want to see is is that technical capability and that uh, you know we, we could uh, as a euphemism for that say number of years experience but when it comes to hiring pen testers what i want to know is can you do pen tests and you 
you don't have to have worked professionally to have many of those skills. Like you say yourself, you mentioned professional skills earlier. Um, yeah, you don't have to have worked as a consultant to have consultancy skills, to be able to write reports, to be able to clearly communicate ideas to customers. That could have come from anywhere. That could have come from you have worked in a, a role that is well aligned, like an IT help desk or something like that, where you're constantly working with quote unquote customers. They might be staff members of the company that you work for, but you're engaging with those people. Or you might have done, I don't know, theater at school or something and that ability to speak publicly to people and converse isn't something that holds you back a lot of ways you can get those skills yeah and we see this like particularly with the caps lock as they're bringing those transferable skills from maybe teaching or something like that into consultancy very very quickly they just need to learn the technical ability yeah teaching's teaching's a great example because it is exactly that right it's talking to groups and, and conveying ideas we may, might never have been a pen tester but you can still do that yeah I, I do think the amount of teachers that are now going through caps lock you can see the teaching crisis the people that want to get out of teaching it's great for security but not not great for the future of our children <laughs> yeah yeah okay the economy's on fire oh well, well that's 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 a talk <laughs> for another day definitely <laughs> so what would you say then Going from being employed, let, let's touch on this, to working in your own business, there's a lot of skills that you have to learn. How have you found that? Like, how much of your time now are you spending running a business and actually being in the business? Yeah, I mean, so I had a cheat code, right? Because one of the things I did at Sakama before starting Akimbo is I was a managing director there. So a huge part of what I was doing was like the business side of things. So I love that cheat code. Yeah, but it is though, <laughs> right? It is. And and there's this, yeah. um, there's this uh, false idea that people who start businesses like drop out of university and start a business at like 20 or 21 or something like that. But when you actually look at the data, the average age of successful founders is 35 to 45. So that doesn't mean those people don't exist and the dropouts who are very, very successful. I'm not saying they don't exist, but what I'm saying is that isn't the only pathway. So very often people who start successful businesses have worked in a number of businesses previously, or maybe they've gotten quite senior in a business. They might've been a previous executive or something like that, or even just like it might be a good idea if you want to start a pen testing team to be a pen tester for a few years and then maybe a pen test team lead or a pen test manager or something like that and then start a business because the, you, you have you get those those broader skills. Uh, so for me, yeah, it absolutely was a cheat code to be able to to work in a director role prior to, to starting a company. Doesn't mean you have to, but within consultancy service, it definitely helps. But yeah, specifically, like I don't talk a, a lot publicly about like the entrepreneurial side of things and that kind of thing, but like it, it wasn't like, oh, I was a pen tester and then I started a business. Like a huge part of my time is dedicated to like, I don't know, uh, read the lean startup and read the hard thing about hard things. And then you'll understand what I'm going on about. But like the lot of time spent on like, how do you make a successful business that you don't necessarily see when you look at successful businesses or particularly when you look at founders? It's having been in a small business uh, previously, the amount of things that you don't realize need doing is, is a lot. How do you define small business though? Because for example, when Instagram sold to Facebook for a billion dollars, they had what, 16 employees? Wow, yeah, very true. Yeah, so um, looking at government statistics, Office of National Statistics, large business, for example, they define as having more than 250 employees. So by that one metric, Instagram was a small business. So yeah, I don't, I don't think we should spend too much time with terms like small business and definitely don't think we should spend too much time with terms like startup and things like that startup for a very long time depending on the number of staff yeah like you see people on like series h who've like run for eight years and they've got like revenue in the hundreds of millions refer to themselves as a startup and then you've got like one guy who's just dropped out of college trying to start a company and he's like why are we in the same category (laughs) my revenue was 50 quid last month like why are we in the same category um so don't like if you 
if you are interested in entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurship and you're interested in starting a business, don't spend very much time worrying about that stuff. I would also maybe caveat that with don't take advice from people who haven't either started their own companies or have studied the, the, that side of things and started companies, worked in accelerators or something like that. Because everybody's got advice and my God, do people have some terrible advice. But yeah, if, you, if you're interested in that side of things, very, very different you know, way of doing things you're going to spend. Simple way of putting it is if you want to be a pen tester, if you want to be a consultant or a SOC analyst or something like that, if that's the thing that you want to spend your time doing, work for a company doing that. Because starting a company, huge proportion of your time is going to be taken away to like the logistics of running a business. And cash flow and yeah, all the good stuff. Like tax, just like accounting, like invoicing, just all that stuff. Sales, marketing. Um, even if you're not doing those things, like if you're in a privileged position that you can hire people in to do that, other companies getting to the point where you can hire people in, it's like you've still got to hire them. Yeah, <laughs> very true. And so we touched on two things there. So marketing, obviously, we are involved in a B-size together. Do you do you recommend that I'm, I'm leading you here? Uh, do you recommend that people put talks in, for example, the things like B-size Lancashire? Do you think that's important for career development to get comfortable with speaking i mean that's two ways that's two two very very different questions do i recommend people put put talk ideas into um conferences in particular like b-side organization represents yes do i think it necessarily helps with career development it depends it depends what you're optimizing for um i think that having the skill set to be able to present publicly is a fantastic one and it'll help you in lots of ways as a consultant being able to converse with customers and things it's not a required skill set it's very very different having a zoom call with like a managing director than it is presenting to like What's the biggest conference? I don't know, like units of hundreds of people. Very, very different skill set. But it's still a cool thing to be able to do. And it's a cool um, experience, even if you only do it once or twice. That's that's cool. But yeah, I think one of the things with conferences that, that people often worry about is like the, the the downside of like, oh, you submit a talk lots of times and it never gets picked up, th- those kinds of things. And a little bit of that's like kind of recruitment where you, you put your CV into lots of companies and you never get picked. And sometimes one of the problems is you might be like, you know, there were six talk slots and you were choice number seven, but you didn't see that. You just see the rejection email. So there is there is a difficult side to it. But yeah, I think it's great. I think people should present to B-sides uh, or should present to security conferences in general because it's a good way of raising your personal brand. It's also really fun if you're that kind of person, if you're wired to enjoy the kind of public discourse. Uh, and it's a good way of bolstering your CV and making yourself more hireable in, in maybe a bit of a different way. So you can achieve you can achieve that kind of increased hireability by like writing blog posts or doing YouTube series or talking at conferences. You don't just have that one option, but but I think it it is a good option if you're wired in that way that you can do it. I think as well, there's a misconception that if you work for Pentest Company A, you're not going to speak to Pentesters at Pentest Company B. We are all one community. I mean, have have you found that in from your experience? That Pentesters talk to each other. It's a tiny industry, like 200 of us. Like, yeah, like, there's, uh, the industry is so small that at conferences, people are going to talk, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's important to note that we also talk to blue teamers, like Pentesters talk to blue teamers. We are, like like you said earlier, we shouldn't be fighting against the blue team. We're fighting against the bad the baddies. There's also like a, a different side to this as well, because you can simplify it down to like that, that military language of like, up four and blue four, we have blue team and red team. But what do you call an internal pen tester? So if you're on the pen testing team of the company themselves, because like I might actually think about you as blue team, even though you're a pen tester, because you work for them, because I'm an external consultant, but you might think of yourself as red team because you spend all day in Metasploit or whatever. So yeah, I don't think we should oversimplify and have like blue team and red team or, or whatever. It's just like, 
uh, having security skills, and that could be security testing skills, or just understanding vulnerabilities is beneficial to everybody, regardless of which team you currently sit on, because that might change over time anyway. Yeah, agreed. Very agreed. And then you talked about advice and everybody having advice. Have you been given any advice in your career that you have thought, actually, that was great advice and that stuck with me? Are, are you speaking on the technical side of things or the entrepreneurial side of things? Because I can probably give you one of each if you'd oh, like. Let, let's do both then. Yeah, we'll do the entrepreneurial one first because that's the, the, the funniest. Everybody thinks they understand things about your company, especially during that that early stage of where like, you've just publicly announced that you're starting a company, you're just starting out and things like that. And I got all kinds of really like just horrendous advice that just like made no sense for the company at the stage that it was in. Uh, so one of those was, oh, you should rent some offices in Shoreditch because Shoreditch is cheaper than other areas. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. Like I live in Manchester, so... That's a bit of a commute for me, but it's pe- people who are um, maybe hyper-focused on either their own view of the industry or maybe even just hyper-focused on like their assumptions of what they think your company is. And that's bad enough if you're doing something simple like starting a consultancy in a known industry. If you're doing something like building a new software product or building a new approach, you're going to have a real world of problems of just people not at the beginning understanding what you're doing and they'll say things like oh you need um you need an elevator pitch you need to be able to explain your company in one line you need to say like you are the uber for and all of that's bs i don't believe any of it so entrepreneurial side of things you get terrible business advice mainly from people who either haven't run businesses or don't understand the specifics of your business or your business context on the technical side of things it's a little bit more like you have to kind of rules lawyer the things that people say to you and you have to kind of understand that there might be some nuance there so somebody might say something to you for example you don't need a degree to work within cybersecurity, and that statement is true but that doesn't mean you shouldn't get a degree and that that works with everything that works with um certain roles that you might accept certain certifications certain degrees those kind of things or it might be the case that somebody says uh the flip side which could be you could really benefit from getting a degree and then you look and you're like, okay, cool. I get a master's degree that'll cost me £22,000 and I'll be financially crippled for the next five years. Maybe that's not the best idea. But it's understanding like what is, what is the broader meaning of what they're trying to give you from that advice. I could say, um, you should submit a talk to B-Sides because doing public speaking is a great thing to add to your CV. But if you have social anxiety and that's like the worst idea for you as an individual, then you know, look to the meaning there. What we're talking about is adding something additional to your CV. Maybe for you, writing blog posts is a better thing to do. So, uh, yeah, to summarize all of those words, my, my advice is when you're looking at the industry, there is no one single path. Try and optimize for the path that works for you. And if somebody gives you advice, like you should do a professional certification or you should do a degree or you should give a talk, try and understand like what is the broader thing that they're trying to give you there to see if if that doesn't work for you, how can you adjust it so that it does? That's great advice. So if you were giving advice to your younger self when you were starting out, what would that advice be? I think one of the things is like, I, I struggle very often with this idea of like, oh, would you I give advice to your younger self? Because where I am now in my career and where I was when I started, so I started working in, in cybersecurity in 2007, it's 2023 and there's a long line between those two things. I don't think any of the advice that I would give now would be useful to that person back then. It's like so far in the past, it's like a different person. And even if you're like, say you're three years into industry or something like that, you know, you're pretty, pretty comfortable in your new pen testing role or whatever. And you think back to like, what advice would you give to yourself the year that you left secondary school? I don't think we've got anything good to say to those people. One of the things that that I like to try and kind of keep in my mind is that you, you don't have to overly focus on something. You don't have to have been wanting to do this since you were seven to work in this industry. 
And that works in a couple of different ways. One of the things it means is if you go to a certain role and you've been thinking and trying to spend a huge amount of time trying to get into that role and it's not for you, change role. That might be work for a different company. That might be like, you know what? I've just spent the last seven years trying to become a pen tester. I'm now a pen tester and I don't like it. Cool. Change role, become a SOC analyst or something. You mentioned earlier through things like caps lock, huge transferable skills within this industry. So yeah, like freaking back at the start of my career, all I wanted to do was like Cisco and, and network engineering and stuff like that. But those skills help me. Now when I'm doing infrastructure pen tests, those skills will help me. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about that kind of like trying to come up with some key granule of advice. It would just be like, Think about where you are now. Think about what is the next step that you want to do and make some progress towards that next step. That could be as simple as like sitting down, writing some blog posts or sitting down and starting the journey to, to get a certification. I don't think we should, as individuals, have like 10-year plans for our careers and stuff like that. Like a lot of stuff changes. It's just not important. Who knows what the industry will look like in 10 years? And I think that's part of the excitement of who it. Know, who knows what you will find interesting in 10 years? That's the thing. Even if the industry doesn't change, you might think, oh, you know what? And, it, and it's true of all industries as well. So like I, I'm talking about it because of my experience within within testing or within security testing. But for example, you very often see people move from recruitment to sales or vice versa because there's transferable skills there. Or you might see people move from tech to pre-sales, pre-sales technical, for example. And it's like, well, you're moving from a technical role to a sales role. Like that, that happens. We shouldn't, we shouldn't worry too much. I think there's a little bit uh, too much focus on becoming like uber within your specific becoming like very 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 specialized within your specific area and it's way more fun if you don't limit yourself in that way the a way i think about it is like sometimes we over focus on failure so for example right you start a company and it works out for a couple of years but then you discover as an individual you don't really like running companies and what you actually want to do is the thing like you wanted you wanted to be a pen tester or something but now you want to spend testing company and maybe that's not what you want to do but if you stop running that company and you go back and work for another organization as a consultant, people say, oh, yeah, that company failed, didn't it? No, I just didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> you know, so sometimes we, we focus too much on that. Don't don't think about failure. Don't spend too much time like trying to avoid failure. But, but think about it, like, what is it that you're, you're doing right now? For me, running a Kimbo car and doing all the pen testing is, is what I want to do right now. But don't look at people who are doing red teaming and that very romanticized position that is or doing physical access taking that very romanticized position like look at what is the next step that you want to take and do that yeah i think that's great advice where you start is i, I say, say this to the caps lockers the very first role that you get get that experience it might not be your be all and end all that's what you want to do but get that that first role so something this came up in another conversation i had recently and I, and I think it's just it's it's a different perspective of the same thing you're talking to people about learning a second language. One of the things that you might do when you start getting to that like B1 level of learning a second language where you've got like pretty good vocabulary, but you, you're trying to get more conversation, for example, one of the things you might do is start reading children's books because the vocabulary in children's books is easier and you can get through that and it's a consumable thing and it will help you. So you're there and you're, you're using this technique to, to upgrade your language skills. But somebody might look at you and go, you're reading children's books. And they might look down at you at that. And it's like you shouldn't you shouldn't worry about that stuff. You shouldn't worry about like that external perspective. No, never care what someone else is thinking. It's, yeah, the only thing that matters is 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 your learning and development, not somebody else's opinion. Are you progressing in the direction that you want to? It doesn't it doesn't matter? Yeah, how you exactly. Know. Well, that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Hopefully, you enjoyed today's conversation with Holly. Uh, if you've got a story that you'd like to share and would like to come on the podcast or maybe you've got a suggestion of a guest that you'd like us to interview please do drop us a message uh, we're on all good social media platforms and yeah please like and subscribe